There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kramitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to The Free Lunch with Greg and Colin. And Greg, last week we discussed the idea of DIY or do-it-yourself. We did indeed. And we have to apologize, kind of, to our co-worker, Steve Molina, for pointing him out as a specific DIY kind of person. We did. And he lays himself out there for us because he does a lot of things himself. So he's an easy target. But yeah. But it was all just for fun. Absolutely. This week, we're going to talk about something different, something that's in the news everywhere, and that is bubbles. A brief history of bubbles, some examples of how those have worked or not worked out in the past, and how it relates to any current bubbles that are out there, like, I don't know, maybe a housing market bubble. I don't know if you've paid attention to the housing market I have. Recently. Yep, you bet. Or cryptocurrency bubble, which seems to be up and down these days. Right on. But I got a little song for us to start us off, Greg. It's not really a song about bubbles, but it's Michael Bublé. Ah, Bublé. So we're going to talk about Bublé's today. Well, it's a marvelous night for a moon dance with the stars up above in your eye. Anyways. Swinging, man. That's swinging. So why don't you start us off with talking about what a bubble is? Well, what incarnation is a bubble, you might ask? And a bubble in the context that we're discussing today, is really more of an asset bubble or a speculative bubble. They can be referred to different ways. But really, it occurs when prices for an asset rise exponentially over a period of time and to get to a point well in excess of that asset's intrinsic value. So eventually, when that happens, prices hit a wall and then they have the potential to fall very far, very fast as the bubble pops. So as you mentioned, bubbles can occur in all kinds of assets, stocks, real estate, collectibles, credit, commodities, and currencies. So let's talk a little bit first about a stock market bubble. Typically, these are driven by raw speculation. So a bubble begins to form when there's a gathering acceleration in price for an asset that far outstrips its intrinsic value. Kind of like GameStop? It could be. means people are willing to pay more and more for a security or another asset above and beyond what's expected based on things like, I don't know, demand, earnings, revenue, or growth potential, things like that. So there was a phrase that was popularized by a former Federal Reserve Chair Alan Greenspan, which he called irrational exuberance. And he used that to describe the collective enthusiasm among traders and investors that fuels rapidly increasing prices that outstrip the underlying fundamentals. So whether you call it the crowd mentality, herd bias, the bandwagon effect, or FOMO, fear of missing out, There is a self-perpetuating cycle where people want to buy an asset because its price is increasing, driving the price even higher and making even more people want to buy it. That sounds like a herd bias. It does. It does for sure. And it's important to note, really, that not all periods of rapid price acceleration are bubbles. I mean, following a recession or a bear market, if you think back to the period, say, 2009, beginning in March of 2009, after the great financial crisis, it's normal for asset prices to recover sharply. So while hope and speculation may also fuel that rebound, namely the worst of the 
market declines or economic slowdown are over, the key difference is that these price increases can ultimately be justified by fundamentals. So yeah, absolutely, we can go through periods of rapid price appreciation and coming out of bear markets or corrections. That's almost always the case, but that's different than a bubble. So there's an American economist, Hyman Minsky, who looked a lot at instability, financial instability, and he identified five stages of market bubbles. So let's talk about those. The first stage of a bubble is called displacement. Okay, and that's when a big change or a series of changes affect how investors think about markets. It's a paradigm shift that could include a significant event or an innovation that causes people to, with good intentions, change their expectations for the asset in question. So, What do you mean by that? Well, so let's talk about a recent displacement. Say about a year and year and a half ago, there was this thing called COVID. COVID, yeah, heard of it. And so what happened is with COVID, there was kind of an intersection of a couple of things going on. First of all, there had been a lot of technology development moving towards cloud computing, working from home, all sorts of those kinds of things. And that intersected with COVID, which resulted in governments around the world essentially shutting down their economies. People had to stay home, had to work from home, and couldn't do all the things they normally did. And that's an event that really caused maybe a big run-up in the stocks of certain sectors, the work-from-home sector, technology, that kind of thing. And likewise, you can look back to the tech bubble that started in the mid-90s, and that displacement was the innovation, the whole development of the World Wide Web. And that basically was a huge technological innovation that became an important, critical part of the tech bubble. Can you imagine today without the World Wide Web? No, I can't. I can't imagine (laughs) (laughs) many things pre-technology. So displacement is the first stage. The second stage is the boom stage. And so you have the displacement stage resulting in some price increases, but things really speed up during the second stage of a bubble. And this phase, the boom phase, attracts speculators who help drive the price of the asset higher as word spreads about its gains. And so in that displacement phase, very often a lot of people don't notice what's going on. They don't notice that, oh, gee, the NASDAQ or the technology stocks have actually been on quite a roll for the last year or two. But in the boom stage, people start to notice. You start to see a lot of media hype and a lot of attention brought to the fact that prices are increasing rapidly. And People want to get on board. So the third stage would be called euphoria. And this is what happens as the asset price skyrockets, the fervor intensifies. So during the peak euphoria stage, people are driven more by excitement than by rational justification for the huge surge in prices. And because new people, new participants are eager to buy in, there's a sense that there will always be someone who's willing to pay more for the asset. So this can make it feel like there's no risk you lose money no matter when you buy in. We'll talk about this a little bit later, I know, but during euphoria, investors have thrown all caution to the wind in pursuit of what seems like a too-good-to-be-true way of getting rich quickly. And as you mentioned earlier, and we've talked about the GameStop thing quite a bit, but you get a whole crop of new investors thinking that, oh, they've never actually lost money. And so it just seems too good to be true. Well, GameStop is too good to be true. It is. It has to be euphoria right now, right? That's right. Yeah, exactly. The fourth stage is profit-taking, and so what happens is when you get this surge in prices, some people begin selling off and locking in the gains as the bubble ends the profit-taking stage. And so at this point, the bubble has been pricked, 
and those investors who recognize those signs will take their profits earlier, while others may wait till later. And what that leads to is the last stage. When the prices stop going up and start stabilizing and going down, you hit the fifth stage, which is panic. And so here you get some people, maybe speculators that are in late to the game, and they held out previously in hopes that they're going to continue to experience that asset price going up. And by the time you hit the panic stage, there's no longer anybody left to buy. And so the fervor to buy an asset gets replaced by a panic to sell. So that's the fear of missing out replaced by the fear of being in. Exactly. That's right. And basically, the plunge in prices quickly wipes out profits and encourages more panic-induced selling. And so we've seen that in numerous bubbles that anyone who's been investing for the last 20 to 25 years has been through several of these cycles. I got a song for us on that, Greg. Right on. Ready? It's a fun song. Are you ready to pop some bubbles? Are you ready, Greg? I'm ready. First, Bring it on. We have to make them. First, you got to make ready? the bubbles. One, two, three, blow! <laughs> One, two, three. We're blowing bubbles there. <laughs> Anyways, enough of that, but. That sounds like fun. Yeah, well, first you got to make the bubbles in order to pop them. So a history of some stock market bubbles, some of them obviously not during our lifetimes because the stock market's been around since the 1600s, essentially, in some form. That's right. And in the 1720s, there was a company called the South Sea Company, and its stock price surged in a matter of months, only to crash, resulting in a huge economic downturn. And this bubble... It lured some people, like even the famous Sir Isaac Newton, as a participant. Hey, he was a smart guy, too. A very smart fellow, I would say, yet he was lured into this bubble. So the way it formed was that the South Sea Company came into an existence in 1711 and was promised a monopoly by the British government on all trade with the Spanish colonies of South America, which sounds like... Monopoly sounds good. Sounds like a monopoly, yeah. So expecting a repeat of the success of the East India Company, which provided England a flourishing trade with India, a lot of investors snapped up shares of the South Sea Company, and it drove the price of those shares by eight times, or more than eight times. So in 1720, the share price of the South Sea Company went from 128 pounds to 1,050 pounds in about six months. Nice. So what happened to it? I'm guessing... It went down. Well, yeah, it, it collapsed because this didn't happen. They didn't get this monopoly and they didn't have the same economic upside that was experienced in the past. So it crashed. So there's an example of probably the first most famous stock market bubble. A second one that we want to talk about is the dot-com bubble, which you mentioned earlier. And it was fueled, obviously, by internet-focused companies filing for initial public offerings or IPOs, as we often call them. And all focused on this new and expanding industry that you just talked about, focused on the World Wide Web. Yes. <laughs> we like to say that too, the we World do. Wide Web. It's more fun than saying the internet. Yes. The World Wide Web. <laughs> but there was a shift in consumer demand and consumer outlook for this new industry. And so you had a bunch of companies that were treated like dot-com companies that went public. Some companies even like pets.com. Now, Greg... I got to say, are we promoting pets.com? Absolutely not. I don't think we can. Exactly. It doesn't exist. doesn't so. exist. But it was one of these companies that went public in the 90s, and it 
just didn't make it. So one year later, it was out of business. And there's a whole bunch of those e-toys, grocery, I don't know. There's so many names from the past. It was euphoria, as you mentioned, in your stages of a bubble. And we all know what happened with the dot-com bubble. It, It collapsed. And it led to a broader crash in the stock market. So, which is typical when you have bubbles in certain sectors, it will impact or it could impact the rest of the market. It's an interesting time. I remember another advisor at the firm I was working with at that time saying that if you didn't buy tech stocks for your clients, you were doing them a disservice. And I believe you had the same conversation with regards to energy stocks in 2008 or sometime around then or in the post. Oh, sure bubble. Yeah. Because everything's obvious after the fact. Right? Of course. So if you see an asset that's gone up drastically in value, in this case, IPOs of internet-based companies, well, you feel like you should be participating. Exactly. Another one was Japan's real estate and stock market bubble. So what happened here? In the 1980s, the yen had a 50% surge in the early 80s, which triggered a Japanese recession actually in 1986. And to counter it, the government ushered in a program of monetary and fiscal stimulus. Sounds a lot like what's happening today. Makes sense. But these measures worked so well that they fostered kind of like this unbridled speculation, which resulted in Japanese stocks tripling in value between 1985 and 1989. Now, Japan has never really recovered since this. So when they talk about the bubble bursting in 1991 in Japan, at the time, real estate was more expensive in Japan than anywhere else in the world, I believe. But it all burst in 1991. And what happened was you had price deflation, stagnant economic growth, and it's actually known as the lost decade. Not a good time to be invested. No, in that's Japan. no, that's right. There's other bubbles that you can look at different asset classes and things. One of the earliest bubble that gets talked about is tulip mania, which occurred in Holland in the 1600s, 1630s. And what happened, the price of Dutch tulips rapidly surged far beyond their worth. And they were trading at prices that were more than people's homes. Don't tulips only like flower for a small period of time during the year? I think it takes seven years or something to actually grow tulips to the stage where they flower once a year. That's right. So you're going to trade your home for a flower that flowers once a year after having it planted for seven years. Well, I wouldn't do that, but hey, I wasn't in Holland in the 1630s. Anyway, of course, tulip prices crashed a few months later, and eventually the flowers sold for a fraction of their peak prices. And then, of course, more currently, the U.S. housing bubble, which obviously was the precursor to the great financial crisis. In the mid-2000s, the bubble began to form in the U.S. housing market. There was a very rapid acceleration in home prices. Speculators began to flip homes in hopes of making a profit, and the average price of a U.S. home increased almost 80% between 2000 and 2006. But you had people who couldn't afford homes buying them, and that often happens. And Minsky described that when he's talking about the different sources of instability. So you've got people that didn't have assets or income to be able to afford a home, but banks were willing to lend them money to buy a home just on the basis that, well, even if I can't pay interest on the mortgage, that interest will just keep getting added to the mortgage, and eventually I'll flip the home for such an inflated value over what I paid for it that I'll be able to pay back all the interest owing the original mortgage, and I'll still make money on it. And Sounds like wishful thinking. What did they call those mortgages when they added the interest 
the mortgage balance just kept increasing because the interest was never paid. It just kept adding to it. Like subprime? Yeah. Well, subprime for sure. And then there was, anyway, quite a concept. I'm going to take out a loan. I'm not going to pay the principal or the interest. And I'm only going to pay it back when the price of this asset appreciates so far. I mean, that was the time of ninja loans. No income, no job or asset. Yet you could qualify to buy a house. Exactly. Exactly. And that often happens when you get to these periods of stability where, okay, in financial institutions, there's calmness, everything's going along fine, and everyone starts reaching for more profits. How can we make more profits? Well, we can lend money to people that maybe otherwise wouldn't qualify for these loans. And of course, we know what happens after a bubble bursts, then everything goes back to the way it used to be. Well, we're only going to loan you money if you really don't need it. We need to know that you can pay back the principal and the interest, no problem. So what do we do with all this information? So the question of whether or not an asset is currently in a bubble, we usually don't know that until something happens. So either the bubble may pop or the rapid price acceleration slows enough to allow fundamental characteristics to catch up to the higher prices. You sometimes see this in real estate markets where you go through periods of rapid price increases in real estate and the prices don't actually crash afterwards. It's just that you might go through eight or 10 years where prices don't do anything. And so the fundamental values can catch up. So in some cases, you see periods where you don't get a popping of the bubble, you just get a period of slow growth, but not necessarily retracing all of the gains that were made during the period. On the other hand, as we've talked about, you might see dramatic price declines, which essentially eliminate most of the gains made during the bubble period. So thinking back to The first bubble that I was involved in in this business, it was the NASDAQ Composite, basically, which started the year 1995 at a price level of 776. And by March 10th of 2000, so just a little more than five years later, at the peak of the tech bubble, it had grown to 5,132. It's quite a jump. So 776 to 5,132, a gain of 661%. By September of 2002... So a little more than two years after the bubble burst, so to speak, the index had dropped to a low of 1108. So the NASDAQ composite lost about 78% of its value from its high. That's the sound a bubble makes when it pops. So lots of people today are wondering, are we in a stock market bubble or are we in multiple bubbles? So there's technology stocks, real estate, cryptocurrencies, All of these assets have seen dramatic price appreciation over the last several years, and people rightly ask, well, is this a bubble or is this just normal price appreciation because the underlying fundamentals of these particular assets are so good? But, I mean, you got to use some common sense. Like when I hear stories of houses going for 100000 more than the asking price with multiple offers of people that didn't even look at the house, I mean, common sense tells you, It's probably a bubble. I was just reading earlier the number of real estate sales in Vancouver. I think this is in March of this past year, was up 73% over the previous year. And one house in the Shaughnessy area of Vancouver sold for $1.2 million above asking. Above asking? Above asking. So there's certainly signs of increased appetite, would you say, for buying houses. So why do people participate in bubbles? It could be because of different social psychology factors. We've talked about this a little bit in our previous episodes when we talk about biases or heuristics, mental shortcuts that we all have. 
there may be something there as to why people get involved. And I believe you're going to look at four social psychology factors that may play a role in this. Yeah, exactly. And we have spent a lot of time on behavioral biases because it's important. It's really important to understand why we make the decisions that we make. So we had Daniel Crosby on our show, who is a behavioral finance guru, somebody who's very well followed in that area. But the four areas I want to talk about today are called greater fool theory, extrapolation, herding, and moral hazard. So greater fool theory states that bubbles are driven by the behavior of perennially optimistic market participants who are known as the fools, who buy overvalued assets in anticipation of selling it to other speculators who are known as the greater fools at a much higher price. So that's that housing description that you just talked about. Somebody can't afford it, they're going to hold it, they're going to flip it to somebody at a higher price later and then recover all of their cost. So according to this explanation, the bubbles continue as long as the fools can find greater fools to pay up for the overvalued asset. Sounds a lot like a Ponzi scheme, really. I was just going to say that's exactly a Ponzi scheme. And by the way, we don't want anyone to think we're calling them fools. No. This is the actual name of this theory. <laughs> yeah, we didn't name it. <laughs> and so we all are involved to some extent, but, but certainly in relation to what you're talking about now, it is the Ponzi scheme. Who is the last person in? Yeah, because the bubble only ends when the greater fool becomes the greatest fool who pays the top price for the overvalued asset and can no longer find another buyer to pay for it exactly. at a higher price. So going back to the GameStop example, and I, I know we talk about it a lot, but it's still relevant. And it traded as high as somewhere around $483 a share. That's right. And currently it's, a I don't know, $180 a share or something. But somebody paid $483 for it. That's right. So I think that would fall into that greater fool theory. Extrapolation. So the term bubble should indicate a price that no reasonable future outcome can justify. So extrapolation is projecting historical data into the future on the same basis, that if prices have risen at a certain rate in the past, they'll continue to rise at that rate forever. I think they also call that normalcy bias. Or recency, recency bias, bias as well. Yeah. yeah. So the argument is that investors tend to extrapolate past extraordinary returns on investments of certain assets into the future. So the housing one would be your house is always going to go up in value at a rate of X percent, which of course we know from previous bubbles just isn't true. There's a reason why when we do our planning with clients, we use a rate of return on real estate of only 2% a year. And it's because we talk about how real estate is really chunky. It's very very volatile, actually. That's right. You go through periods of rapid price appreciation. And then, as I mentioned earlier, you might go through many years of really nothing. So extrapolation, overbidding on certain assets will at some point result in uneconomic rates of return for investors. So only then the asset price deflation will begin. So, I mean, that's the bubble bursting. That's all it is. And people will look at history around this, like, well, historically, this happened or that happened. And I just want to remind people that history doesn't repeat itself, but it can rhyme. I don't remember how that saying goes exactly. But so even though we're going through a period now where there's certain assets that may or may not be in a bubble, you can look back at well, what's happened in previous bubbles and see, is that a good decision to be making right now? And then why are we making that decision? Well, herding, as we talked about so it's just another example of behavioral finance, this herd behavior. So the fact that 
investors tend to buy or sell in the direction of the market trend. If you see everything going up, there's a good chance that people are going to be more inclined to buy in. And if you see everything going down, there's a good chance that people are going to be inclined to sell. That's just a herd mentality. Now, investment managers such as stock mutual fund managers are compensated and retained in part due to their performance relative to peers. So when you see a certain fund doing really well, like, I don't know, maybe that ARC fund, it was up some astronomical amount over the last few years. And it attracted a ton of investment dollars into it, making it, I think, one of the biggest funds in the world, right? Biggest ETFs, yeah. Biggest ETF in the world. And what's happened to it since? It's actually underperformed relative to the market. It's retraced. Like, I think it's down about 30% or something from its high back in November. Which isn't that long ago. (laughs) No, that's right. And again, I think when you look at any of these kinds of things, if you date back to the beginning of the fund and where it is today, despite the 32% or whatever it is decline, it's still done fairly well. But what happens is most people that are aware of it, it's even existence, weren't aware of it when it started. They only became aware of it when price had gone up exponentially in the first place. Well, even back to your example of the NASDAQ, I mean, you said in 1995, it was trading at 776 points. That's right. And in 2002, it dipped to a low of 1,108 points. So that's still a positive return if you held it In fact, I looked at it, it's about 5.2% a year from 95 to 2002. And that in itself is not bad, but most people didn't get in at the beginning. They got in somewhere after it had made news, when people started realizing, hey, wait a second, the NASDAQ is up doubled in the last year. Then all of a sudden, people become aware of it. We talked a little bit about how stocks or funds or investments attract people. They're like a glittery object. It's like it shows up in the news and all of a sudden, hey, wait a second, I got to get some of that. Exactly. I got to get me some of that action. (laughs) Well, and The last one I want to talk about is moral hazard. So moral hazard is the prospect that a party insulated from risk may behave differently from the way it would have if it was fully exposed to the risk. So a person's belief that they're responsible for the consequences of their own actions is an essential aspect of rational behavior. So an investor who must balance the possibility of making a return on their investment with the risk of making a loss, this risk-return relationship. Moral hazard can occur when this relationship is interfered with, kind of like things through, I don't know, government policy. Exactly. Big time. Back during the credit crisis, when you had the TARP program rolled out, which is the Troubled Asset Relief Program, signed into law by then U.S. President George W. Not to be, (laughs) I don't know, it's not George H.W., but George W. That's right. Basically, it backed all of the big banks at the time from failing. So when you have this insulation, people don't always make the same decisions. Well, that's right. There's a lot of talk about that right now because in response to the COVID crisis, and of course, you may remember stocks being down about 35% or so a year ago last March. I may remember that, yeah. (laughs) And so what happened is the central banks and governments around the world stepped in to offset what everyone saw as a huge decline in GDP which of course was experienced, GDP tanked around the world, as you might expect when you shut down the economy. But what happened basically is they, with all of the support they brought in, in terms of fiscal stimulus and central bank actions, lowering interest rates, 
buying corporate bonds, buying high yield bonds, it basically took away the risk. And so you saw the markets essentially bounce right back and go on and set new highs last year because people see the government as basically backstopping any risk. And even today, people might say, well, look, the stock market's not going to crash because if it does, of course, the central bank will step in, lower interest rates to zero again, and buy up corporate bonds and troubled assets and we're good. So what's the risk? So moral hazard can be a big issue right now. Well, and it's not new. I mean, this historical example goes back to what you talked about earlier, tulip mania. I mean, the Dutch parliament tried to bail out that market in 1637. So it's no different than our current governments putting stimulus into the marketplace. For sure. Let's play that song again. You know which one I'm talking about. Remember we just listened Are to you it. ready to pop some oh. bubbles? <laughs> First, we have to make them. First, we got to make the bubbles, Ready? Greg. One, two, I'm just three. having so much fun here. Whoa. I'm mentally blowing bubbles. <laughs> One. Anyways, <laughs> look, we're not here to spread fear or anything like that and say that like we're in bubbles specifically that are about to burst. We're just saying that if they do, if we are in some and if they do, I mean, we can look back at history and see what happened, that things have recovered. Well, that's right. I think it's important that we highlight that we have no idea at this point whether we're in a bubble or not. Most bubbles are only apparent in hindsight. And whether the price appreciation, the stock setting new highs right now, whether that's just part of the normal growth that we're experiencing and corporate profitability and sort of a changing of the economy, or whether it's a bubble, we'll know later. But I think the key thing is, well, what do you do? How do you protect yourself from bubbles? And I think we may sound like a broken podcast here, but, but I think <laughs> the way you do it is the way we always talk about having a well-diversified portfolio, not being concentrated in one asset class or one sector of the economy or one sector of the stock market or the bond market, rebalancing portfolios and being prepared to rebalance if something bad happens. There's lots of people back a year ago last March when the market tanked that rebalanced back into stocks from their bond positions or cash positions and actually really smoothed out and softened the volatility that we all experience. So the question is not how to time your way in and out of what might or might not be a market bubble, but to use some of those basic things that we always do which are things like asset allocation and diversification. Control the things you can control and understand and accept the things you can't. Yeah, right Make on. sure the things you can't control can't decimate you financially. That's right. Well, that was good. Hey, listen, I want to finish this episode talking about another bubble, just for fun. Okay. I had my cousin over for dinner last night. He's in town because his job is to ride the hot air balloon, the Remax hot air balloon in South Calgary. That's his job every day. So he's in a bubble every day. He's in a bubble every day. He rides that bubble up and down. Yeah, right on. (laughs) That's one of those things that I personally will never do. Well, no, he said, would you ever want to come up? And I said, look, I don't even like going up escalators. I'm not going up a hot air balloon. But Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) But more power to you. Everyone picks the level of risk they want to take on and that's above mine. Yeah, so in the mornings, if you're in Calgary and you see the Remax balloon high in the sky in the south side of Calgary, give a wave to my cousin Alex and say hello. He won't be able to hear you, but exactly, doesn't hurt. Okay, so end it there? We shall. 
All right. Well, then, till next time. Thanks for listening in. Next time. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2021. And or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above.